Well, good evening, church. Very Christmas Eve to all of you. Thank you. What a joy it is to once again gather and to sing God's praises and to just pause and remember that Jesus is the reason for the season. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to have a shorter message tonight. Matthew chapter 20. My children, and I'm sure if you have them living in your home as well, have been eagerly counting down the days till Christmas. My children have an advent calendar with a little gingerbread man, and every day that little gingerbread man moves one day closer to day 25, Christmas. They also have a countdown calendar, so not just, a, you know, not just an advent calendar, but another countdown calendar that's religiously updated. So even before I go downstairs in the morning, one of the boys has already changed the number the number of days left until Christmas. So it started out 20s, the number, you know, 20 some odd days until Christmas. It moved to the teens and now into the single digits. They can't wait for Christmas to arrive so that they can take a break from school and, of course, open their gifts. And the Advent season is a special time. There's food and family, friends, presents, and these are all wonderful gifts. But they can so easily, in this season of busyness, and celebration, they can so easily distract us from the giver. And what we need more than anything else tonight, what I need, is for us to slow down and behold the glory of Jesus, a glory that's hidden from the world, but seen through eyes of faith, a faith that comes from hearing the voice of God through his scriptures, a glory that we need to see once again tonight. And tonight, I want us to see that Jesus came to be our ransom. Jesus came to be our ransom. So Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, I pray that in the midst of the celebrations, the gifts, the food, the anticipation, God, that you would give us fresh eyes of faith to see Jesus tonight. Help us to be once again in wonder, in joy, in awe that our Lord, the eternal Son of God, would come to be a ransom for us. Lord, we want to see that through eyes of faith. We want to enjoy that and, of course, rest in that and then work from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
Well, we see in this passage two disciples, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, they want to be at the right hand and at the left hand of Jesus in his kingdom. They want positions of power and prestige. They want to outrank the other disciples. They want to stake out their place. We can relate. My kids keep asking me if they're going to get more presents. They don't like it if their siblings have more presents than they do, if, they, if others have more and they have less. I like to stake out a good spot. A good spot means a better view, a better seat, a better experience. But sometimes the stakes are much higher. It's like it's the, the difference between making ends meet or not or getting that promotion. Like James and John and the other disciples, our first instinct is often to think of ourselves. But were they wrong? Were James and John wrong to ask Jesus for the best spots in the kingdom? Were they wrong for wanting positions of honor? Look back one chapter to Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, just a couple verses, 19:28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So there you have it. Jesus promises thrones one day. There will be positions of power and prestige. But not this day, not right away. Let's look at, again, at chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus tells his disciples the kingdom doesn't come right away. Before Jesus secures the crown of salvation, there's the crown of thorns. Before Jesus drinks the cup of salvation, there's the cup of wrath. We want that crown, don't we? We want that position. But the cross comes before the crown. In other words, first the cross, then the crown. First the cup, and then the crown. And this cup that Jesus is referring to is a cup That should make us pause and tremble and leave us absolutely stunned because it's a cup that made Jesus himself tremble. This is the cup that Jesus himself prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane to be taken away from him. In Matthew 26, 39, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus would pray that a second time. And then the third time, Jesus pleaded with the Father over and over that somehow that cup would pass. But knowing that there would be no other way, Jesus willingly and joyfully submits to the will of his Father. Throughout his ministry, we see that Jesus is fearless. He doesn't tremble. He wasn't afraid of telling the most powerful men that they were sentenced to hell for their hypocrisy. He wasn't afraid of legions of demons. He wasn't afraid of sickness or death. He wasn't afraid of storms that would scare the daylights out of the most seasoned fishermen. But Jesus dreaded this cup. Why? What would make the Son of God tremble? Well, this cup 
was the cup of God's infinite judgment against sin. Psalm 11.6 says, Let him, let God, let God rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Psalm 75.8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And we move forward to the New Testament, we see that this cup of wrath, this cup of judgment, comes to all who die in their sins. They will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger. And He will be tormented with fire and sulfur, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night. Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11. This cup which makes Jesus tremble, refers to the cup of God's final judgment against sin, a judgment where every other judgment is but a faint shadow. So whether it's the flood, fire and sulfur, plagues, exile, all those judgments are but a shadow of God's final judgment. And this cup is the cup of God's wrath, and Jesus is going to drink that cup to the very last drop. He's going to empty that cup, undiluted. And Jesus came to drink that cup so that we would never have to drink that cup. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, thank you for joining us tonight. The Christmas story is a story of good news of great joy, but only if you know the bad news first. The good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The good news that unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, is only good news if you know you need a Savior. That there is a cup you have to drink one day. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's from John 3.16, probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible. So Jesus is calling you to come to him even today. So will you believe in him today? Or will you perish? Will you turn to him for life or will you die in your sins? So we urge you as a church, as pastors, as followers of Jesus Christ to receive Jesus and rest on his finished work alone for your salvation. And follow him all of your days, never looking back and never giving up. That is the good news of the gospel. Let's continue in verses 24 and 25. And when the ten heard it, this request of James and John, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So it's not just James and John. looks like all 12 of the disciples want positions of power and prestige. They saw what Rome had, the Roman Empire, and they wanted it. They saw the Caesars, the governors, the legions, the centurions, the armies. Rome was in charge. They could tax you. They could make laws you didn't like, and they could even execute you. Rome was in charge, and they made sure you knew that they were in charge. But Jesus redefines their understanding of greatness. The disciples are thinking in terms of Rome and power. Let's look at verses 26 and 28 through 28. 
it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke his disciples for wanting to be great, wanting to be first. The disciples value his kingdom, and they want to play a big part in it. But Jesus does correct them for thinking that the kingdom of heaven is like the kingdoms of the earth, that for confusing the values of his kingdom with the world's kingdom. Jesus and his kingdom doesn't operate like the world and its kingdoms. Jesus turns the values of the world upside down by pointing to himself as the ultimate example of greatness through being a servant, through being a slave. Verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Church, may the Lord just give us fresh eyes of faith to see how Jesus came to be our ransom. A ransom is a price paid to free someone in bondage. A ransom could be paid to free a slave, or it could be paid to free a prisoner of war. And Jesus says ransom because we enter this world enslaved and in need of a ransom. Jesus said anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, John 8, 34. And because we're born enslaved to sin, we were born as captives to the devil, a slave to his will. And like a, like a fly snared in a spider's web, the more we try to free ourselves from sin and Satan and from bondage, the more entangled we become. God could have left us enslaved without hope, without God in this world. But Jesus came. Jesus came to die on the cross to be our ransom. In the words of Hebrews 7.26, Jesus is the holy, innocent, unstained, and sinless sacrifice. Theologians call this the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. The word substitutionary comes from the word substitute, a stand-in. So when the regular teacher is sick, you have a substitute, a stand-in. The substitute is equivalent and takes the place of the regular teacher. The word atonement means punishment for sin, that the punishment for sin, including God's righteous anger against sinners, is satisfied. That punishment, his anger, that justice is satisfied. It's met. It's taken care of. So substitutionary atonement means that someone or something stands in as our substitute to receive the punishment we deserve. This isn't a new concept that Jesus suddenly introduces right here in Matthew chapter 20, but it's found all throughout the Bible. As early as Genesis chapter 3, we see this idea of a substitute. After Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God replaces their fig leaf coverings with coverings of animal skins. Adam and Eve would have recognized, this animal died in my place. As we move on to Exodus chapter 12, we see that the Passover lamb is killed and the blood of the lamb protects Israel from death. As Passover is celebrated year after year, Israel would have recognized that this lamb dies in my place, in our place. And then on to Leviticus 16, 
where one goat is slaughtered for the sins of God's people, and then the other goat is sent out in the wilderness. Once again, Israel would have recognized that these goats died in our place. And you can sum up substitutionary atonement with those three words, in our place. Jesus, as our ransom, builds upon all of this teaching all throughout the thousands of years of redemptive history. He builds upon all of this and is the sacrifice which all these other sacrifices points to. So Jesus drank the cup in our place. Jesus suffers the eternal wrath of God in our place. Jesus dies on the cross in our place. And when you see all that Jesus has done in our place, how he has given up his life as a ransom, how he has drank our cup, that changes everything. The kingdom values of Jesus make no sense. The way up is down. The way to be great is to be a servant. The way to be first is to be a slave. No one was lower than a slave. You did all the work and got no credit. As one man once said, you know you're a servant when you're treated like one. And in our natural state, in the state that we're born into, no one wants that. No one wants to be treated as a servant. Humility then and today is a liability, not an asset. Humility gets in the way of getting ahead. And that's why Jesus has to supernaturally ransom you and rescue you and change you from the inside. Because apart from his grace, the miracle of the new birth, no one can live this out. And here's where the rubber meets the road as we bring things to a close tonight. How much you serve and how much you lay down your life for others shows whether you know the ransom Jesus paid for you. How much you serve and you lay down your life for others shows whether or not you know this ransom that Jesus paid. Because that's what Jesus' life was all about. As one commentator puts it, he was all about enabling and empowering others rather than wielding power for himself. Enabling and empowering others. Is that what your life is about? Think about your family and work and ministry, wherever God has placed you. If your life has been ransomed, purchased by the precious blood of Christ, then your life will be about enabling and empowering others rather than wielding power for yourself. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to lay down his life, to give up his life as a ransom for many. Thank you for the gift of Jesus, for the gift of this ransom. Lord, we, don't, we haven't yet begun to grasp the depths of your love for us. Help us to grow in understanding this love, this love that would move Jesus to step down from heavenly glory, to enter this world as a human being, as a helpless baby, so that he could be our substitute, dying upon that cross, being our ransom. And Father, may we follow in the footsteps of our Lord. May we seek not to be served, but to serve and lay down our lives for others. In Jesus' name, amen.